Hi, I'm Paul Stringfellow and welcome back to Tech Interviews. We've had a great summer break, but now we're back with a host of new shows. First up, it's time to learn, so dust off your notepads as we get an introduction to Infrastructure as Code. Enjoy the show! Hi and welcome to this week's Tech Interviews. Uh, so on the show, we're going to take a look at an area that's really intriguing me. It's something I'm relatively new to, uh, but starting to kind of pick up on and, and, and learn quickly. Um, and something that fascinates me, and it's, it's the idea of looking at how we are starting and looking at different ways of deploying infrastructure within modern IT environments. Um, so to help me to do that, I've, I've, uh, I've got myself a fantastic guest this week, uh, Rosemary Wang. Hi, Rosemary. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Paul? Yeah, real good. Thank you. And uh, well, thanks for coming on Tech Interviews this week and um, to, to help us kind of explore uh, this, this kind of uh, new way of deploying infrastructure, infrastructure as code. Um, but before we start jumping into that, um, why don't you uh, spend a minute, introduce yourself, tell us a little about who you are and what it is you do. Sure. Uh, I am Rosemary. I am a developer advocate for HashiCorp. I used most of the HashiCorp tools, uh, but currently I focus quite a bit on Terraform. I actually came from a DevOps engineering background. As I tell people, I have no clue to this day what DevOps engineer really means. And I was working a lot on proprietary cloud systems. Over time, I started to get into infrastructure automation, specifically in networking. And I slowly grew into the public cloud space and other spaces, including containers and some of the newer technologies that are out there today. So, well, that's, I mean, that's a great introduction, and uh, I kind of like the idea that you, uh, even in that role, had no idea what a DevOps engineer does, um, which is uh, which is great. It's a it's a typical IT phrase, isn't it, that we come up with these phrases and nobody really knows what they mean. Um, so, so as part of this show, let's explore another one of those phrases, but let's see if we can help people to understand what it does mean and, and why it might be relevant. So, I kind of touched on this in the introduction, the idea of infrastructure as code. Um, I say this is kind of a new thing to me. It may be a phrase that, that some of the listeners are familiar with, um, but for those that aren't, uh, you know, do, do you want to give us kind of give us a, a you know thirty thousand feet view of, of infrastructure of code and, and what it is and what we mean? Sure. I think there is something to be said about the definition of infrastructure today. Uh, I always say that infrastructure is anything that supports application delivery because infrastructure is not just limited to your typical compute network and storage anymore. So the result is that the way you deploy infrastructure and the way you interact with infrastructure can vary really widely. So if you're working on a cloud provider like AWS or Azure or Google, what you'll find is that they have an API for you to provision and touch and deploy. So it makes it really easy to interface. Switch it back to maybe a Cisco switch, one of the earlier ones. Those are a lot harder to interact with. They're a lot harder to provision at times. And infrastructure as code as the core of it is how do you apply software development practices to specifically infrastructure? How do you make that interaction as automated and as codified as possible. I like that you use the word codified because um, before we started recording, we we had a discussion about whether that's even a word. So you've just made it a word, which which is great. It works for me. Um, so um, well, so, so that's interesting. That's that's a kind of an, an interesting idea and um, an interesting description of, of infrastructure as code. Um, I think it's interesting that a couple of times you've also used uh, the public cloud as as kind of the background for for where this sits. Um, 
So is is um, why why are we seeing this kind of movement? Is it purely being driven by what we see in terms of the way that infrastructure is delivered in public cloud, and we kind of like the idea and we want to extend that out? You know, what what what's driving some of this interest in this area and and seeing this development of of infrastructure as code? When I started as a DevOps engineer, it was for proprietary cloud systems. And the demand coming from development, application development organizations was, we want a way to self-service compute. Very simple ask in theory. And the way that it would be done in the past would be to put in a procurement order and they would wait a few months and get the server. This time they said, we want to interact differently with the way we obtain infrastructure. So I think that the idea of self-service and the ease by which someone is able to get resources, infrastructure or application development resources, today really influenced the adoption of public cloud. Public cloud makes it very simple from a user perspective to say, give me three servers and you get that very on demand. So I don't necessarily think that public cloud is equal to infrastructure as code, but I do think that it's a great practice ground for when we actually take practices in infrastructure as code and apply it to something that's a little bit easier to uh, basically interface with. Yeah, and I think even in my limited experience so far of, of kind of this, this, this practice, this way of delivery, um, I, I do think that kind of public cloud, like you said, is a great example of the, the capability that we can deliver as we start to, uh, and again, I'm, I'm going to use the word now you've made it real, codify big parts of our infrastructure you know it's it's the I, I suppose if I look back it's, it's the idea of what we started to see with those first steps into Intel server virtualization uh, you know the idea that VMware came along and took things that we used to build on physical physical boxes physical hosts we'd install Windows Server on it maybe we'd put a SQL database on there but it was a physical thing that was kind of tied to that that piece of hardware and it had to move along with that piece of hardware when we came along and turned that into a virtual thing you know a piece of software almost it gave us a lot more flexibility, ease of deployment, a lot more flexibility in, in where we deployed stuff. And I thought it was interesting you used the phrase in there, kind of simplification. I mean, do, do you think simplification is, is almost the biggest driver for, for kind of this, this infrastructure code movement? At the end of the day, I think it's simplification from a user perspective. Unfortunately, I, I, I'm really sad to, see, to say, but it's not necessarily simplification from the underlying infrastructure, but it is an abstraction so that it simplifies how the user might interact with it. It is it, The way I kind of view it is a little bit like if you at, were at university um, and you had to use some kind of computing power, right? You would put in some kind of job and that would get processed. That was actually what happened at my university. Um, but that was also pretty typical of a mainframe, right? So to say on demand, I want this amount to do this job or this function for me uh, is a little bit of, an, uh, not a novel idea, but it's a resurging idea today. And I certainly think that there is something for a user to look at and say, I just want it to be easier to do the business, give the business value that I would like to give without necessarily knowing the underlying complexity. Yeah, and I think that um, piece you just talked about, that idea of on-demand, 
I also feel is is a really big driver in this. You know, and the, and the thing that kind of made me start to explore this area was was this idea of looking to deploy consistent consistent infrastructure. So maybe in terms of even even in simple things like a lab environment, I, I want to be able to deploy a lab environment to do something, and then when I finish with it, tear that lab environment down and leave it so i'm not paying particularly in public cloud but i'm not so then consuming resource that i'm then getting a bill for if i'm only using it once a month but when i need to use it again i like the idea of being able to say you know just go and deploy that whole thing again but even underlying even if the underlying architecture has completely changed as you said that that level of abstraction that means i don't really have to worry about that i'm not rewriting my whole architecture i'm just saying just go and deploy that thing again because it's the end result that, that i want out of that and that that for me does does sound like a huge driver and, and i think it's one of the most powerful things that i've kind of started to experience in, in this space i mean what, what what are some of the so you know we've talked about simplification we've talked about this kind of idea of, of on demand you know what, what are some of the other drivers um that that you're seeing in your experience with why people are starting to consider this as a as a way of, of building and deploying their infrastructure from a, you know, if you're a cxo the the explanation i hear quite a bit is it comes down to cost is the cost of running my own infrastructure or running my data center going to be more than running it in a public cloud or running it with someone who's managing that data center for me? I think it's very dependent on the organization, but it does drive quite a bit of the adoption, mostly because it's making people think about it, right? It's think, making people think about how much they've done resource optimization for their particular infrastructure. And sometimes it's not possible to move to public cloud infrastructure. Sometimes it's not possible to put everything in containers. So the decisioning comes down to, in some ways, cost from a C-level standpoint. And the explanation I hear quite a bit from practitioners, you know, people who are looking at the space, it's interesting. They tell me, I want to reclaim my weekends. <laughs> I want to reclaim my nights. Uh, as you were making bolognese with uh, your family uh, on a weeknight, right? Um, a number of people that I chat with from the engineering side say, you know, we want to be able to go home, uh, hang out with my family or take a weekend, enjoy the outdoors. Uh, they want to, I think, reclaim some of that time um, that is usually spent debugging, troubleshooting, or digging into the complexities of the infrastructure they have today. Yeah, and I think um, that's a really interesting part in there around the, uh, you know, and I'm a big fan of this, and, and, I, and I do think, it, you know, it, it is kind of a, well, there's probably two, to fair, just actually two things in what you've just said. I, I mean, I think one of the things you touched on is that this is not necessarily about public cloud. You kind of said that in your introduction. This is about taking infrastructure and potentially being able to deploy it anywhere, uh, which then leads on to the other thing that I think is really interesting here is this idea of consistency as well. Because as you were just touching on, the idea that I spend lots of my time maybe troubleshooting my infrastructure and I'd like to reclaim some of that time. I think one of the reasons we end up troubleshooting uh, lots of environments is that as we're deploying infrastructure, if we're, if we're relying on kind of ad hoc deployments with human beings all the time, that one of the things we can come across is that, you know, uh, Bill over in, uh, you know, Bill on a on a Tuesday deploys different from Susan on a Friday. And sometimes you can then come across areas where some of the infrastructure doesn't maybe operate in quite, quite the way you expect it to. Whereas if we start to move down this idea where we have a 
codified version of that infrastructure. So we've kind of created it once and then can deploy it con you know, continually on a regular basis. I think that potentially has the potential to take away quite a lot of those challenges. I mean, is that is that something else that you see in this space? Is, is that, you know, again, one of the benefits that people might look at? It is. I was working with a set of engineers who previously never touched any code and didn't know any code at all. They never used Terraform. They had never used AWS or Azure or Google or any of the public cloud providers. And it was a difficult discussion to have to say, look, these manual changes that you're introducing into your environment are the cause of outages or they're the cause of quite literal fires hmm. uh, in a data center. So part of this discussion started to turn when we said, okay, let's think about a different way of understanding change in infrastructure. What if change in infrastructure was tracked and audited by version control, not necessarily by change requests that may or may not be reviewed? What if changes in infrastructure were tested before they even went to production? And maybe they're not close, but it's close enough, right? That there's an understanding of how it would be delivered to production you get an experiment or an estimate of what it might behave. And then once you get to production, what if there's a way that you could more easily roll back changes, right? You're not making manual changes that you've forgotten late at night. Instead, what you're doing is codifying and you can backtrack your history. And I think that changed a lot of the way that they thought about how they interacted. Toward the end of at least the work that we did, Actually, they were able to push to production, very similar to a software delivery team where they push a change uh, into a code base. The code base goes through a, a continuous integration framework. The framework has a pipeline that runs a set of checks across multiple environments. It tests. And when it finally rolls to production, it tests once again to make sure that everything is working. And sometimes, yes, it didn't go well, right? Sometimes you roll a security patch and of course things broke and application development teams would come back and say it's broken. Uh, and you would go and fix it and debug, but we were able to roll out and constantly roll forward changes. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily revert, right? It was saying like we roll forward onto a previous state that we knew about, that we knew was good. And we could go back and debug and figure out what was going on with the incorrect environment. So I, I did a um, did an episode of the show um, earlier this year, I think it was. Actually, yeah, probably only a few shows. Actually, by the time this one goes out, because we've had a had a bit of a summer break, you know, it's, it's actually probably is only a few shows back. And spoke with Cumulus Networks about uh, their kind of approach to the way that they deploy um, their infrastructure, and that's that's very codified. I think is probably the the phrase to use. Um, and, and actually, that that example you've just given there was one of the things that struck me the most about uh, one of its most powerful features was actually that idea because lots. So that infrastructure is code and it's not tied to uh, custom hardware you know we're not reliant on a particular type of switch in their case or you know particular storage or particular server that it allowed them to do lots and lots of pre-test before they ever rolled things out in an environment that was a replica of what production would look like even though that environment only ever lived in a virtual environment for example but they could still test all of the important code elements of their infrastructure and then when it was deployed out on kind of the white box hardware that was sat out there you could do that really quickly with a you know and and massively reduce the risk of 
what those infrastructure changes might look like. And as you said, then, that even if you've then seen errors when you've done that, you've been able to quickly compare kind of the previous state to the new state, maybe fix those changes and quickly roll roll that update out to, to kind of fix any problems. And, and, I, and I thought while you were talking, actually, what, what struck me was that is part of the driver. It's, it's part of the problem that we're solving uh, with with this kind of more of a move to infrastructure code. It's a problem we're solving that actually the way that we want to be able to deploy infrastructure at the kind of speed and scale and, and on demand, as you said earlier, is that forcing us to look at new ways of deploying stuff? You know, we, we can no longer sit there waiting to put some switches in a rack and and go away and configure them. You know, is, is that is that something that's driving enterprises down this route? I think so. I think that you can't, I think risk and agility often work uh, kind of against each other in Mm, some regards. Um, It's very, it's very, um, it's very easy to not make changes because of a risk aversion, but it's similarly also difficult uh, to innovate when you are risk averse. So part of this is balancing the two. And I think Infrastructure as code, as at least at least driving the adoption of infrastructure as code, it's not necessarily let's just innovate and move to public cloud, as you pointed out, or move it to better infrastructure, move it to different infrastructure. In some ways, it's a balance on the other end of the scale, which is how do we mitigate that risk? Uh, and part of that is saying our existing auditing systems no longer support the types of changes and how they're described. It's very difficult to put in a change request about networking, mostly because it's going to end up being a bunch of IP addresses. And some people may check those IP addresses to make sure you're not tunneling BGP somewhere that it shouldn't be. But most of the time, people will just review them and, and say, OK, that's that's a set of IP addresses. Cool. Uh, and let it go to production. And there's nothing wrong with that. But in some regards, Part of this is where's the risk mitigation in that scenario? Yeah, and I think for lots of organisations now, you know, we've long since passed the idea that uh, you know to make those kind of changes, we can have a big outage over a weekend. You know, for, for lots of companies now, particularly you know, particularly because of the increase in the amount of time that those organisations are available to their customers, because either that's electronically, you know, it's something they're doing online, it's an app that they're providing, they're having to crunch some big data numbers somewhere over a weekend. The idea that I can take the infrastructure down for a weekend to do some IP changes, install some new switches, you know, lots of that has been removed and I think we're having to find ways to remove risk while deploying a speed and I, th- and I love that phrase actually it's hard to innovate when you're you're risk averse and um, so the uh, kind of the next thing I, I wanted to explore with you though was the and we've talked about this idea of codifying infrastructure um, I mean what what elements of infrastructure can we codify I mean we've talked about networks there but uh, you know what 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 realistically if we're going to deploy infrastructure as code what what parts of infrastructure can we deploy as code I think it's the the answer of it's as much as possible, but a good number of infrastructure offerings today have an application programming interface or an API. And even if they don't have an API, they usually have some kind of interface for a user to interact with. Whether or not there's connectivity for some kind of automation to do it for you, it's a little bit different. It depends on the piece of infrastructure. I think Terraform is a great example of sort of the limits uh, or even the, in some ways, the infinite number of ways that you could automate infrastructure. Uh, Some things, when you write a Terraform provider, for example, uh, 
for infrastructure as code provisioning with Terraform. When you write something that plugs into an infrastructure component, sometimes we get stuck, right? We look at this piece of code and we're like, we cannot interface with this piece of infrastructure. And no matter how hard we try, there's no way for Terraform to necessarily interface with that infrastructure. And that is sort of that limit. But if there is an application programming interface or a really neat interface for any kind of code to plug into, people probably would be able to do some infrastructure automation with it. So for example, someone created a Domino's pizza provider uh, for Terraform, which meant that someone could provision pizza orders. When someone would want to do that, I, you know, it certainly would work either way. But uh, I think that it's a really interesting idea that with the changing definition of infrastructure, we're basically saying we can plug in to anything that has a, a good interface. And I, and I think the reality is that what we're starting to see across all elements of um, certainly traditional infrastructure, even if we just looked at that, you know, kind of the server stack and software, uh, sorry, the switch, switch network and what we're doing at the storage level, vendors from kind of brand new, uh, you know, brand new innovative vendors and the big traditional guys are all starting to software define more and more of their infrastructure. And I get that just software defining it is not necessarily the answer, but certainly the drive to making sure that APIs are visible, you know, so that we can then start to programmatically deal with that. Um, and, I, and I just think it's such a huge, powerful shift, you know, and it's, and it's, a, it's an area that, that really, you know, really interests me and it enthuses me in that I think this big shift on how we, we can deploy infrastructure is going to almost fundamentally change the way that we we do deploy infrastructure across enterprises and it's going to definitely allow us to be far more agile and flexible in the way that we we kind of meet enterprise demand um now actually when you were talking before there you mentioned terraform a couple of times and so it's not really really dug into that um so so why do you explain what terraform is and, and the part it plays in infrastructure as code and um, because it has a specific i suppose a real specific value in terms of what it allows you to do that maybe a native infrastructure as code solution wouldn't allow you to do? Yeah, so Terraform is a tool that allows you to plug into and automate infrastructure. And the power behind Terraform is that first it's open source. So you can access the code base, you can look at it, you can plug into it, you can extend it for yourself as well. That is where what I mentioned before providers come in. Providers plug into API of your choice. So we have providers for Azure, Google, AWS, Alibaba. So there are a number of interfaces that Terraform will work with. And the core of Terraform boils down to what changes am I making to my infrastructure? How do they affect the current infrastructure state? And can I apply those changes, right? And can I manage that in one place? So it really boils down to two commands in Terraform. There are more, but there's really two key commands, which is Terraform plan, and that outputs a dry run of the infrastructure creation or update or removal. So you get to see that in a really nice view and Terraform apply. Terraform apply basically gives those changes to whatever API you're plugging into, if it's a cloud provider or other and it will actually apply the changes for you. When you're ready to destroy, it will destroy everything in that state. So no orphaned uh, servers sitting in AWS eating costs, right? Or no orphaned you know, jobs, machine learning jobs necessarily 
a Google similarly. So it's a great way to manage infrastructure, not just from a provisioning standpoint, but also from an optimization standpoint. And it also um, gives you the capability as well in, in that kind of area to understand what your known good state is almost. And, and uh, does it have the ability to be able to look at that infrastructure and say, do you know what, these things have changed and either I can remediate those or you're happy with those. You know, it's a, um, but, but there's a way of doing that, which, which I, I, I think is really valuable if you can do that kind of thing. Yeah, it's very declarative. So you declare the kind of state you want and Terraform will try to always achieve that state. And it's really powerful, right? You're not necessarily post-auditing and saying, I see there's a security hole here, TCP all 000, right? Instead, what you're saying is, I have a configuration, I will apply it such that there will never, or there there might not be a 000 TCP all in my security group all the time, right? Um, so when you declare that this is the state, it's a lot easier to say, these are the comparisons I'm making across environments than it is to do the guesswork of, you know, where is it manually configured in production versus QA uh, versus development? And, uh, you know, and, and, I, and I think actually as we, as we're in a world now where security is so important. I just think that idea of being able to have a kind of a known good secure baseline and either A, always be able to deploy to that standard and B, be able to look at that infrastructure and be able to take a look at that infrastructure and say, do you know what, we've deviated and we now need to sort that out, you know, and I think that's a, a hugely powerful capability alongside, you know, having that consistency means we always know what to expect in terms of performance and output and, and outcome. Um, whereas once, because as we start to remove that kind of human creativity almost because uh, because i think we tend to find that um, people who deploy infrastructure can be bizarrely creative when they do it and that they've all got like like to add their little flavor here's my here's my signature on the bottom of my switch config that the rest of you don't do um i'm sure we've all done it um but but you know uh, particularly as we try and deploy at scale and uh, and, so, and actually some, something else that i think is really powerful in terms of terraform is actually that in a lot of instances, so we started our initial conversation uh, long before we recorded this show, talking about some of the stuff that I've been doing in Azure with um, Azure resource templates, ARM templates. And of course, that's fine if I'm working in Azure, but that's no good if I'm working in AWS or I'm working on-prem with a HCI stack or you know a standard VMware infrastructure. Um, it, but in terms of Terraform, actually, I, I, that's something I could do in terms of create my infrastructure in Terraform and then deploy in all of these multiple locations. Yes, so Terraform does support any multi-cloud capabilities. There's one misconception though that I always end up addressing, which is, uh, across all of these cloud providers specifically, is there a common data model? So if I declare a virtual network in Azure, does that automatically map to a VPC in AWS? And the answer is no. Um, the data model is tied to the specific cloud provider. But what it will do very powerfully is allow you to specify configuration on both clouds pretty easily and in a very consistent manner uh, and deploy to both. And so while the language and the semantics for each cloud may not be completely the same due to the underlying API structure and the fact that they're not perfectly one-to-one -to, -one to begin with, uh, you still have the ability to deploy to basically multiple clouds if you want to. And there are a number of engineers I talk to who they take an Azure, you know, an Azure uh, module they wrote to deploy to Azure, and then they'll refactor part, you know, parts of it 
to deploy to Alibaba, for example. So they'll do that work and they'll eventually have two sets of modules that they can pick and pull and decide, okay, when I need to deploy to Azure, here's when I do it. When I need to deploy to Alibaba, here's where I do it. Yeah, and I suppose I get to keep all of that in a kind of a under the control of Terraform, at least, you know, so as I say, it's, it, it's, it, it's knowing the differences and the, the, you know, the customization changes you need to make across those multiple platforms, but at least knowing it was a relatively straight, certainly to me, it looks at least a relatively straightforward uh, kind of a coding language to say, yeah, as long as I know the specifics to ask each of each of the infrastructure providers, whether that's on-prem or in a public cloud, I've got a structure that I can work to, and that structure always looks the same with its with its kind of little nuances. And I think that's a because again, you touched on the idea of consistency. I think that's so powerful in this kind of multi-location world that we we like to live in where we do we probably are for particularly if you're an established enterprise you absolutely are going to have infrastructure that remains on-prem in your data center because it's going to have to but you are going to want to tactically exploit cloud when you need to you know it's maybe a new development or it may be you just need to base some things into cloud over a short period and being able to always do that and maybe pick the best location for that at any given time i think is a is a big part of the way we're going to be deploying infrastructure um in the, the medium and a long-term future um yeah. well look as, as we kind of um uh, kind of come to our end of our time here one, one question i always like to ask as i kind of wrap the show up is so, so if i'm listening to this and i'm a cio or an it decision maker or an it pro uh, charged with deploying infrastructure and, and how we're deploying infrastructure in the future i mean what are some of the things that i might be looking at because maybe i've listened to this and thought well, this all sounds very interesting and maybe i want to go and find out a little bit more but i'm not really sure if infrastructure uh, infrastructure's code is something that would be valuable to my organization what are the kind of things that i would look at inside of my own organization that maybe makes it a good candidate to to consider infrastructure's code as, as something to include in the future? So actually, when I was a wee DevOps engineer, <laughs> one, of, uh, one of my tasks was to make a justification for infrastructure's code, right? Uh, and it was pretty interesting because I tried many approaches. I tried the uh, you know, convincing cultural approach. And then I tried some of the other process-related approaches. And what it came down to, actually, that was really influential in informing the way I thought about, you know, pitching infrastructure as code, and even the way that my CXOs adopted infrastructure as code, was that I went and I looked at all of the changes, right, that happened in a year. I looked at the type of changes. I looked at the infrastructure type. I broke it down. I looked at how long people scheduled a change window to do it. Uh, and most of the time, you know, you may or may not have this data, but you have some kind of data usually on how long it takes you to make certain changes, right? Some changes might be a little bit easier, might be a little faster. Others might just take a lot longer. And uh, what's really interesting is that if you divide out the changes that went horribly awry, uh, how many of those, you know, how many changes per year went horribly awry uh, and, you know, why, but also how long did it take to revert or to fix it? Um, and it's really interesting when you think about the long tail, the long tail meaning the changes that didn't work, that broke, that took a ton of time. If you're seeing it, you know, kind of try to resolve over the course of a week, two weeks, that's usually a signal that, hey, maybe we need to go back, look at our infrastructure, look at the complexity of it and see how much of it can we reasonably start to automate and bring under some kind of infrastructure's code control. 
are those changes that are breaking coming from config changes? Are they coming from manual changes being inserted some other time that we don't know about? And I think that once you examine the most, the worst in some ways, the worst of the worst of changes that broke, you start to get an understanding of where coding that infrastructure starts to become valuable. It starts to become more tangible that, hey, maybe if we put a little bit of code around that, we can actually deploy it more safely and we can deploy it more frequently. Yeah, well, I I mean, that, that, you know, I think that's a, a great place to start, isn't it? Is, is actually to look at. Um, and I, I was speaking to somebody actually only this week about. I think always a good place to start with some of these projects. Not necessarily look at the big stuff that you can solve because they can become quite difficult, and those kind of projects can lose impetus because maybe people see too much risk. But like you said, it's to maybe look at those long tail of things that were were not maybe even necessarily huge shifts in infrastructure, but actually were things that caused problems and could have been solved so much quicker so maybe they were never quite kind of a major thing but actually if you'd had a little bit of thought about how you deployed it and had some consistency in the way you approached it you could have probably cut the the resolution time to that problem you know down by 50 60 70 percent and allowed you then to go on and, and deliver the bigger things and i think that's always a always an interesting place to start you know quick wins i think as people talk about you know the idea of just where, where were the quick wins what could what could i do easily quickly and show some real value to this approach. I think it's always really good advice. Uh, well, look, uh, you know, I think we're, we're kind of, um, uh, you know, I've, I've taken up way too much of your day already and, and could explore this conversation for, for many hours, but um, I think people will be sick of hearing my voice at the very least. Um, so, um, well, look, just, just as wrap up, I mean, if people are interested in this topic, want to find out a little bit more about uh, yourself or maybe a little bit more about what HashiCorp do, because I know we've kind of touched on Terraform, but I know you guys do a, an awful lot more than that. I mean, what, what's a good way for them to uh, to do that? Sure. Check out HashiCorp.com. And that has a huge amount of documentation on all of our tools. Um, if anybody is ever curious about infrastructure as code or wants to hear about how to use Terraform or has a question about Terraform, they can always reach out to me on Twitter. I am Jack of all trades, master of none, zero eight. So if you just take the first letter of that phrase, uh, that is actually my Twitter handle, same Twitter, uh, same GitHub handle as well. And they can always find me on LinkedIn. That had never even crossed my mind when I saw your Twitter handle. Um, so that's, a, <laughs> that's a, a great use of a great use of a Twitter handle. Look, Rosemary, I really appreciate you, you kind of giving us this this overview of Infrastructure's code and where it might sit and and, and the, the kind of things that it starts to solve. I'd um, love to get you on again in the future, I think, to maybe to delve into what's, a, for me, a really fascinating topic, a, a, a little more and a little more detail. But, um, but for now, look, Really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show and uh, look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks for having me, Paul. I hope you enjoyed that. For show notes, pop over to techstringy.com. We'll also find all of our previous Tech Interviews episodes. And if you've got an idea for the show or would like to appear as a guest, why not drop us a line at podcast at techstringy.com. Next time, we're back into the world of open source web scale databases. So if you want to make sure you catch that show, why not subscribe? You can find us in all the usual places. We're on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Stitcher, as well as all of the good homes of podcasts. So until next time. Thanks for listening.